think of some creative, uh, <laughs> some creative. Uh, just for this one show. Family-friendly expletives. It would feel so good. Maybe we'll do a. <laughs> After uh, dark? Yeah. Maybe we'll just do a separate. Uh, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll invite, we'll have to invite uh, John Anderson, Professor John Anderson to be on for that, for that After Dark. Think, he would enjoy that. I think there's that. a little bit of. After Dark. Uh, swear yes, words. The, um, You're listening to KXRY Portland at 107.1 and 91.1 FM and KXRWLP Vancouver at 99.9 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Driver, step out of your car, get your hands wide and see you put them on the hood of the car. Police are under scrutiny as never before. Especially when they use deadly force. 97J Central, shots fired, subject is down. Experts say some shootings could be prevented with better training. Slow down, back off, take cover. You don't have to win. But most states don't mandate that training. And many law enforcement agencies aren't willing to change on their own. Nothing's significantly broken in law enforcement right now. Can't nobody teach you how to de-escalate nobody other than the streets itself. On this episode of Reveal, we join forces with investigative journalists from American public media for an in-depth look at police training around the country. But first, this news. Support for X-Ray FM comes from our listeners, as well as Brass Tack Sandwiches, providing house-made ingredients and responsibly sourced sandwiches to meat lovers and vegans alike. Brass Tacks is located on North Vancouver and Fremont. More information online at BrassTackSandwiches.com.
the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Downtown San Francisco, just before the afternoon commute, July 2016, police confront a 35-year-old African-American man named Pierre Dyson. Dyson is shirtless and stalking a busy street corner. He seems agitated. He tells the cops he wants to die. They believe he has a gun, so they order him to take his hands out of his pockets, but he won't. The crowd gathers. They record the action on their cell phones. In one video, you can see four officers with their guns drawn surrounding Dyson, and you can hear the crowd jeering and heckling the cops. The interim police chief, Tony Chaplin, is at City Hall three blocks away. And I took a look up, and there were helicopters hovering, and I saw quickly that this thing, uh, you know, had the potential to end up in another officer-involved shooting. Just a few weeks earlier, the man Chaplin replaced as police chief was forced to resign after officers shot and killed an unarmed African-American woman. This time, the cops do something different. Police back away from Dyson, cordon off the area, and bring in the SWAT team. In news video, you see police in body armor lying on top of an armored vehicle, rifles, trained on Dyson. Instead of bullets, police fire beanbag rounds. After another hour, they throw stun grenades. When they finally arrest Dyson, almost four hours into the standoff, they find a loaded revolver and extra ammo stuffed in his pocket. Dyson is injured, but he later tells a local TV station he's grateful to be alive. I was just thankful that I'm still here when the police did their job as far as not killing me. Now, all of this played out by design. We decided that we're going to wait this guy out to save his life. The decision was made. I called it, and we did it, and uh, he's alive today to tell the story. Over the past couple years, San Francisco has trained nearly half its police force in tactics meant to de-escalate a crisis. Chaplin says one of the most important things they do is slow things down. He says the department reviewed five years of police shootings. Take a gander at this for a second. He brings out a chart showing that when police opened fire, they typically made that decision fast. In under a minute, 45% of the shootings occurred. When you went to a minute, you're up to 10%. At two minutes, you're at 5%. Three minutes, and it's just a literally the graph falls off a cliff with each minute that you stall these things out. If we create this time and distance, as you can see from this graph, we save lives. Chaplin says that backing off won't work in every case. In fact, just days ago, San Francisco police did shoot a man not far from where they confronted Pierre Dyson. They say he was stabbing someone, but police leaders in San Francisco and some other cities around the country still hope that better police training can help avoid the kinds of high-profile shootings that have undermined trust in law enforcement in the last few years, from Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014 to 15-year-old Jordan Edwards last month. Police are being taught to examine their unconscious racial biases and repair relations with the black community. But of all the new training ideas, only one is really focused on reducing the use of force, and that's de-escalation. 
the kind of approach San Francisco is embracing. The problem, most police departments aren't doing that training, and most states aren't forcing them to. In this hour, we're teaming up with a group of investigative reporters from American public media to look at why police spend more time learning to shoot their guns than learning how to avoid shooting them. To begin, APM Reports correspondent Curtis Gilbert visits a South Georgia town where police don't do much de-escalation training in spite of what happened there in 2015. Most days, life in Arlington, Georgia is pretty uneventful. It's a farming community 30 miles from the Alabama border. Arlington has 1,400 people and one grocery store, Jerry's Country Meat. Jerry Scarborough owns the store. He recognizes just about every customer who walks through the door. Everybody knows everybody, knows where to go to church, where the children go to school, you know, what the dog's name is. Jerry has a couple rocking chairs out front. He's happy to sit down for a few minutes and talk about the day a year and a half ago when a stranger walked into his store. The man was in his late 50s, and he was acting bizarre. He was quoting scripture a good bit and singing. The only thing he said to me when I said something to him was that uh, I was fired to turn in my keys, all 14 of them. So he was acting like he owned the place. Yeah, yeah, basically. And he asked the girls up front if they believed in God. And when they said yes, he went to ranting and raving at them. Was he threatening them or just saying this crazy scripture thing and trying to fire people? Uh, physically threatening them, no. I was telling them all to get out. Then he left and went back to the deli and started on my deli girls back there. Told all them girls they were fired. And then he went back out the door. 911, how may I help you? One of Jerry's employees called the police to report the man. Something's mentally wrong with him, seriously. Like, I okay. think maybe he's crazy. Sergeant Mickey White was off duty, driving his squad car home from his job at the Early County Sheriff's Office. There were no other police nearby when the call came over the radio, so White took it. By the time he rolled up, the man was in his car, trying to get through a construction zone. White's dash cam video shows what happened next. Driver, step out of your car, get your hands wide and see you put them on the hood of the car. Instead, the man gets out of his car and walks slowly towards Sergeant White. Put your hands on the hood of the car now. Then, just as he had in the grocery store, the man begins to sing. It's a hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Put your hands on the car, I am going to tase you. Put in your hands on the car if I'm, go- I'm going to tase you. The taser doesn't knock the man to the ground. It just makes him mad. He stumbles back, then cocks his fist and charges at Sergeant White. The man lands two glancing blows as the sergeant draws his gun. 97J Central. Shots fired. Subject is down. The man is dead. Sergeant Mickey White had been on the scene for a total of 35 seconds. Last summer, a grand jury ruled the shooting was legally justified. But right after he killed the man, Sergeant White wondered out loud whether he'd done the right thing. And you know bad thing about it, the dash camera recorded this conversation with another officer about 20 minutes after the shooting. But you're, you're, you're here. You know what I mean? That's what's important. I could have fought. I could have fought him, Sergeant White says. Don't second guess yourself. You did what Mickey had to do. You did what Mickey had to do. You did what Mickey had to do. Mickey White did what he was trained to do. 
but I'm left wondering whether it all could have ended differently if he'd taken another approach. And I'm not the only one who has that reaction after watching the video. He's dead? Yeah. Over that? Oh yeah, shot twice. That makes no sense. Derek Collins trains police to resolve situations without violence. One of the things the officers have to do is practice patience. If the citizen did not have a weapon on them that shows like a danger to himself or to other people, things don't have to be resolved within the first 30 seconds. Let him sing all day. Let him stand out his car and sing until backup comes. Even in this post-Ferguson world where it seems like every police shooting of an unarmed person gets dissected and analyzed, the stranger's death didn't get much attention. It happened far from any major media market. No one demanded to see the video. There were no protest marches. Databases of police shootings maintained by The Guardian and The Washington Post both misspell his name. It was Derry Touchton. Derry's family didn't file a lawsuit. You know, my first words were, you know, I don't care. Clint Touchton is Derry's son. He's 30, and for most of his life, he didn't have much of a relationship with his father. At the time of the shooting, it had been about 10 years since he last saw his dad. There's just a lot of resentment at that time coming out. I really didn't want to deal with it, but that was selfish, so. You know, and then the fact that, you know, like, hey, he's gone, he ain't never coming back, you know, that kind of settled down on me, and then I kind of got, like, haunted, you know. It took a toll on me, you know, it kind of messed with me. Because there was so little media coverage of Derry Touchton's death, Clint didn't even know there was a video of the incident. When I tell him I have a copy on my laptop, he asks if he can watch it. All right, so you sure you want to see yeah. this? Oh, yeah, I'm, yeah. And I mean, yeah, I feel like I need to, you know, I, I feel like it'll help for real. Okay, um, here it goes. Oh, we do. Yeah, he's definitely gotten older. Clint listens in silence as his father is tased and takes a swing at Sergeant White. When the shot is fired, his dad and Sergeant White are off camera. Well, that was it, wasn't it? Yep. Dang. Damn, there. It's kind of depressing, though. You know, that's the last thing he's saying there. Man. I just, you know, why? It's just, seems like it was uncalled for. You know, the whole scene, not just, you know, the, as far as the police, you know, him and all. It was like just mind-boggling, you know. It's just like, what? Where did that come from? You know, I never in a million years. Maybe me, but not him, you know. I'm the one that's always had to run in with the law, <laughs> you know, but not him. He never had no trouble with the law. Clint's father may have been a stranger in Arlington, Georgia, but half an hour up the road, where he grew up in Newton, just about everybody knew Derry Touchton. Friends say he was popular in high school. His family had money when he was younger, but his father made some bad investments and lost the farm. Marquita Bullard used to own the trailer park where Derry lived until a couple years before he died. She says on Derry's good days, you couldn't hope for a better friend. There was this old black lady that he loved, and she loved him, and they were both having it hard financially before he got his disability started. And he would go catch fish out of the river and bring them to her, and she would cook for both of them. I mean, he's just that kind of person. But Marquita was also familiar with Derry's problems. She was one of the counselors at the local mental health clinic. She says he was bipolar and occasionally suffered from delusions. Derry once told friends he'd punched a hole through a concrete wall. Another time, he said he'd won a baseball scholarship to the University of Georgia. 
Marquita says as a mental health worker, she took training on how to deal with people like Derry. And she wishes more police did, too. I have a lot of respect for most law enforcement people. But what I'd like them to recognize is they need training in this area. And not just for mental health reasons, but like dealing with alcoholics and drug addicts, dealing with domestic violence, dealing with parents who are upset when they have to go in and take their child out of the home. All of these are volatile situations, and they have the potential to blow up in your face. The officer who killed Derry had been involved in other volatile situations. After the shooting, Sergeant Mickey White had to tell agents from the Georgia Bureau of Investigations about one of them. Have you been involved in any other shootings? Yes. And, uh, September 26, 2009, Baker County. The McElroy family was having another squabble. Orcha McElroy is 62, and he's lived in a trailer at the end of a muddy dirt path for most of his life. He's got a thick South Georgia accent, and he can talk pretty fast. Argument be made sometimes. We don't agree with sometimes. He, get out he says, argument be made sometimes. We don't agree sometimes. He's talking about his brother, Terry. Terry used to live next door, and he used to get to arguing with other members of the family. He get out of hand sometimes. We just call police. Police come in, set him down. He go into the house. He'd get out of hand sometimes, and they'd call the police. Police would come in, settle him down. He'd go home to his house. Oh, he's just a family thing, that's all. Just a family thing, that's all. But that night in 2009, it wasn't the usual officer who responded. It was Mickey White. He'd taken a job with the Baker County Sheriff's Office earlier that year. White tried to arrest Terry, but he told the investigators Terry wouldn't cooperate. I sprayed him with pepper spray. He wiped it out of his face. I hit him with the metal baton in the legs. He come toward me. I try to handcuff him. He throws my handcuffs across. I push him to the ground. He does push-ups with me on his back. He gets out of from under me somewhere during the thing. He says, oh, you want to fight? He comes and jumps on my back, and I stick the pistol under my arm and shoot. I said, man, don't believe you shot me, man. Terry McElroy survived, but he still has a scar on his chest from the bullet wound. I didn't even feel it. At first, I just went down. I just went down and got weak. But you know, I felt it when I wound up waking up in the hospital. I felt it then. Terry eventually pleaded guilty to obstructing an officer. An investigation cleared Mickey White of any wrongdoing in the shooting. He wouldn't talk to me for this story. Mickey White has been a cop for 15 years. In that time, he shot two unarmed people. He's never taken a course in de-escalation. But he has taken more than 600 hours of training in other subjects. In fact, on the day Sergeant White killed Derry Touchton, White had just attended a five-hour training session. And it wasn't just any training. It was called Firearms Requalification and Use of Deadly Force. He spent part of the morning doing target practice on the shooting range, and the other part learning when he could legally open fire on someone. Describe it? Well, I do it in the form of a PowerPoint presentation. Captain Will Cottle taught the deadly force class at the Early County Sheriff's Office that day. He's been doing it since 2010. The training on deadly force is focused on the code sections, basically. So it's coming right out of the law, out of the code book is where we get that training from. Have there been any um, significant changes to, like, the kinds of topics you're covering with officers? There have not been any changes in the law, so our training wouldn't have changed as far as what's required when, you, when you're authorized to use deadly force. 
When police use deadly force, the law is generally on their side. If an officer reasonably believes there's a threat to his safety or someone else's, then he's allowed to shoot. Cuddle didn't spend any time teaching officers how to resolve a situation without firing their weapon. Mickey White's training history is pretty typical. We looked at training records in other states that, like Georgia, haven't required police departments to train officers in de-escalation. Those records show officers usually don't get that kind of training, just like Mickey White. We reviewed training records from every law enforcement officer in the state of Georgia. It's remarkable how little of their training is devoted to de-escalation. It accounted for about 1% of all the training hours over the last five years. Early County, where Mickey White works, did considerably less than that. I went to see the Early County Sheriff to find out why. You enjoyed the day, then? It was okay. William Price has held this office since 2012. He was the first black sheriff ever elected here. It was very big fine. Talk about it. Well, it was basically said it was impossible here. Price has a handmade placard on his desk. It says, Back the Blue. I saw similar signs around town. You know, all lives matter, you know, no matter what color it is. Sheriff Price describes Mickey White as a good old country boy and a great employee. This Mickey White, all I can tell you, he's just, he's just a good officer. He isn't interested in second-guessing the shooting of Derry Touchton or how Sergeant White was trained. But you could what if that situation from now to forever. A lot of folks don't realize we have two seconds to make a decision. People sit around the table and judge us all day. You know, it was justified shooting. That's, that's, you know, that's just basically it. So it has nothing to do with his training. He's well trained. Um, but, you know, there's this whole, like, line of training that, you know, slow down the action, give yourself some space, try to give yourself some more time, don't try to resolve the situation as quickly. Do you think that an approach like that might have led to an outcome where that guy isn't dead? Well, so that, that, that's still my point. In certain situations, yeah, you may can go and approach a certain situation a certain way. But in that situation, boom, bam, it happened. I'd just like to pause there for a moment. The sheriff says de-escalation training wouldn't work because the situation unfolded so quickly. But one of the key things officers learn in de-escalation training is to slow things down. So out of 600 hours of training, why didn't Sergeant White spend even one of them learning about ways to avoid shooting people? Sheriff Price questions the value of formal de-escalation training. He sees that as a skill that simply comes with experience. The first five years of my law enforcement career, I about had to fight everybody to put them in the car to arrest them. The next five years, it was a lot easier to talk them to get in it. From my experience, over 20-something years of experience, on-the-job training is the best you can get. Can't nobody teach you how to de-escalate nobody other than the streets itself. You'll learn quickly. I think that's a whole bunch of BS. Police de-escalation trainer Derek Collins says the skills he teaches don't come naturally to every cop. And the reason why is this. Everybody is not as emotionally intelligent as other people. Last year, Derek's organization contacted more than 150 law enforcement agencies in Georgia to offer them de-escalation training. Only two police departments signed up. We should have had at least 100 times more officers in this training, and no one sought us out. The people that we got in the training, we all sought them out. 
and it's a shame. The whole experience left Derek feeling cynical, especially when he sees all the other training police are doing. Let me go to policetraining.net. You got he pulls up an online calendar where police trainers advertise their classes. We saw one de-escalation training, right? Yeah, and there's another one there. Okay, that's two. So let's keep on scrolling down. You've got uh, emerging law enforcement legal trends, internet tools for criminal investigators, hands-on electrical fire, investigating officer-involved shootings, statement analysis, career protection resiliency, criminal patrol drug interdiction. Oh, and then there's, there's and that's me. <laughs> so we saw three so far. Out of, I don't know, maybe 100, 150, 200. With all these shootings that has happened, you would think this board would be filled with de-escalation trainings, but it's not. Derek says if police chiefs aren't willing to make de-escalation training a priority, someone is going to have to make them do it. And in Georgia, someone now has. In December of 2016, the Georgia Peace Officers Standards and Training Council voted to require every officer in the state to take at least one hour of de-escalation training every year. It's not a huge amount, but it's a lot more than most Georgia police departments have been doing. That's Curtis Gilbert, a correspondent with APM Reports, an investigative journalism group based at American Public Media. After the break, Curtis takes us to Minneapolis, where we meet cops who are changing their approach to people like Derry Touchton. I just was very honest with them and let him know I thought that his behavior appeared paranoid, and he basically started crying. That's in a minute on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. X-Ray FM would like listeners to know about Bake to End Hunger, a Portland Pastry Chef Association's fundraiser to benefit partners for a hunger-free Oregon. Oregon now ranks sixth in the hungriest states in the nation, and Partners for a Hunger-Free Oregon believes that with help, we can become the first state in the nation to end hunger. Bake to End Hunger is May 11th from 5 to 9 p.m. in the Olympic Mills building, and attendees are invited to taste fine cakes, savories, cocktails, and more. More information at feastly.com slash bake to end hunger. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. 35 seconds. That's how long it took between the time Sergeant Mickey White pulled up in his squad car and the moment he shot and killed Derry Touchton in rural Georgia. 
In Ferguson, Missouri, the shots that killed Michael Brown were fired less than two minutes after the police arrived. Took just 90 seconds. This, 90 seconds later, Brown was dead. For Philando Castile in Minnesota, it was just over a minute. In a one-minute traffic stop in Falcon Heights. For 12-year-old Tamir Rice, playing with a pellet gun in a park in Cleveland, it was less than two seconds between the time police rolled up on the scene and opened fire, killing him. It happened in the blink of an eye. It all adds up to four people dead in under four minutes. Experts believe it's no coincidence that so many police shootings happen in so little time. They say if police slowed down, it could save lives. Today, we're taking an in-depth look at one way police departments are training officers to take their time through something called de-escalation. Curtis Gilbert and his colleagues at APM Reports found most police departments spend hardly any time training in de-escalation, even though they spend a lot of time doing various other trainings. For the next part of our story, Curtis takes us to Minnesota to see how this training actually works. How are you doing this morning? We're excited. All right, I like that. Excited. This training session was held in a nondescript government building surrounded by farmland on the rural fringes of the Minneapolis suburbs. More than 40 people attended, including both cops and county social workers. This eight-hour course focuses on how to resolve a mental health crisis without resorting to violence. Slow down. Back off. Take cover. You don't have to win. Retired police chief Paul Montine is one of the instructors for this training. One way he teaches officers to slow down a situation is through better communication. Montine advises them to avoid asking yes or no questions. You need to open in those questions. You know, what's bothering you? You're mad. How come you're mad? So that people will tell you what they're thinking about. At the end of the training session, the cops and social workers get a chance to practice those techniques. Okay, we're going to work this about 15 minutes or so. I sit in on one of the groups. Jean Ramthan works in the County Human Services Department. She's assigned to play an agitated Alzheimer's patient named Charles. Am I supposed to start? Okay, I'm having a temper tantrum. The nurse just made me mad. Deputy Ryan Edmonds from the sheriff's office plays himself. Why does she make you mad, Charles? I just, I don't know. I don't know where it is. I haven't seen my stuff. Maybe Claire knows where it's at. Claire? Claire. We can certainly ask Claire. And who is Claire to you? Edmonds is trying out an active listening technique covered in the class. The idea is to show you're paying attention by repeating the last thing someone says and turning it into a question. She works for me. She works for you? Deputy Edmonds took another de-escalation training a couple years ago. He says he never learned this stuff when he started his career. I went through training like 12 years ago, and they definitely didn't have any same or similar topics, more of a hands-on use of force issues, not communication skills, active listening skills. We didn't really touch much on that at all. So you've been through a training like this before, and have you had an opportunity to apply some of that stuff that you've learned? Absolutely. Every day. Does it work? Absolutely. Yeah, works really well. It's hard to measure exactly how well this kind of training works, especially when it comes to reducing deadly police shootings. Recent police shootings have gained a lot of media attention, usually after a video of the incident surfaces, but the fact is, most police officers will go through their entire careers without ever firing at anyone. 
So you can't take a department, train the officers, and then check back to see whether they shoot fewer people the next year, because they probably wouldn't have shot anyone anyway. But police departments that have embraced this training say it's working. In Dallas, Texas, the year after officers took de-escalation training, the department saw an 18% drop in the use of force. Use of force means more than just shootings. It also includes everything from wrestling with a suspect to tasing them. Las Vegas also made a major push for de-escalation and saw use of force decline. But the most powerful evidence that training works comes from the cops who've done it. Jennifer Lazarczyk joined the Minneapolis Police Department 21 years ago. Back then, she says, officers weren't trained to empathize with people or understand mental illness. Lazarczyk remembers she was taught three simple steps to get people to comply with her orders. Ask, tell, make. Ask them to do what you'd like them to do. If they don't do it, tell them to do what you'd like. And then when that doesn't happen, you make them. Make them means use physical force. And all those fights have taken their toll. I stubbed my toe one time in a fight, which damaged my toe to the point where it's now fused. I have a wrist issue that when I was trying to arrest somebody, he did the like swiggle out of his little coat thing and I fell landing on the palms of my hands and injured my wrist. It'll always hurt. But Officer Lazarczyk isn't getting into as many fights as she used to. The reason, she says, is a few years ago, the department put her through de-escalation training. And I should probably begin by um, having you just tell me where we are and what we're doing. (laughs) You want me to tell you where we are, huh? (laughs) Somewhere in the skyways of Minneapolis. Even cops have a hard time navigating the maze of the Minneapolis Skyway system. It's a series of elevated, enclosed bridges connecting most of the buildings in the downtown business district. You can walk from one end of downtown to the other without ever going outside in the cold of winter or the heat of summer. Picture an eight-mile-long food court winding from the second floor of one building to the next. I met Officer Lazarczyk here because it's one of the places where she put her de-escalation training to work. In January, she and her partner answered a 911 call from a security guard here. A homeless man was screaming at the morning crowds in the skyways, accusing people of trying to steal his cell phone. Lazarczyk and her partner found him in the lobby of a finance firm. As we approached, I could see kind of a group of maybe 10 to 15 people standing in a circle in front of that desk, kind of between the pots and the pillar right there. At the center of the circle was the man, still agitated and screaming. He was sitting on the ground, Um, 20 years ago, that would have been, okay, you go on one side of them, I'll go on the other. We'll both grab an arm and we'll cuff them and and take them to the hospital. Most of the time that goes okay, but there's those few times where it doesn't go okay and they start to fight with you. So instead, Officer Lazarczyk asked the crowd to back up. She kneeled down in front of the man, made eye contact, and started a conversation. I just was very honest with him and let him know I thought that his behavior appeared paranoid, and I pointed out that he was sweating and that it was cold and that wasn't normal, and he basically started crying. Um, In having this conversation with him and continually reassuring him that I wanted to help him and not hurt him, he started to talk about wanting to go to the hospital. Officer Lazarczyk says she got him to the ambulance without even using handcuffs, and nobody got hurt. 
Listening to this story, I was struck by the parallels with Derry Touchton, the man in rural Georgia who was shot by a sheriff's deputy. Like the guy in Minneapolis, Derry was mentally ill and causing a disturbance, and someone called 911. But when the officer in Georgia arrived, he went old school. Ask, tell, make. It ended 35 seconds later with Derry dead in the middle of the road, not on his way to the hospital like the man in Minneapolis. Officer Lazarczyk says she spent at least 35 minutes talking down the homeless man. Not seconds, minutes. Now she's helping other officers in Minneapolis learn how to do the same thing. And she says some of them were deeply skeptical at the start of the week-long sessions. I will say I had so many people that were negative, old-timers who had been trained in the old way, that would argue with me during the scenarios and say, I'd never do that. I would never do it that way. That would never work for me. And we would talk it through. And at the end of the training would say, wow, you know what? I get it. That makes sense. I'm going to try that next time. More Minneapolis police might try that next time. The city is putting all 800 of its patrol officers through a week-long de-escalation training. But that's not the norm. When we come back, we'll find out why so many police departments spend so little time on this type of training. Nothing's significantly broken in law enforcement right now. We are better trained, better selected, better educated than ever before in the United States of America's history. Yet we're in the toilet right now. Why? That's in a minute on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Bridge City Cleaning Service, a local company providing custom cleaning to hundreds of homes in the greater Portland area. More information at bridgecitycleaning.com or by phone at 503-238-1232. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Barack Obama made improving the relationship between police departments and the black community a major priority. His task force on 21st century policing recommended a variety of changes to the way law enforcement agencies train their officers. It will be good for police and it will be good for the communities involved and as a consequence it will be good for the country. This hour we've been focusing on one of those training reforms. It's called de-escalation. The goal is for police to use force less often and to prevent the kinds of shootings that have put a wedge between police and communities in recent years. But America has a new president now, and Donald Trump doesn't like the Obama administration's approach. They have fostered the dangerous anti-police atmosphere in America and all throughout America. Trump promises to support cops and not question the way they do their jobs. The war on our police must end, and it must end now. So the Trump administration probably won't be pushing local police departments to train officers in de-escalation. But even when Obama was in office, he didn't get the police to change much. That's because the federal government can't tell local police departments what to do. State governments can. But only 16 states mandate de-escalation training. 34 don't. Almost every state has a small group of people in charge of making that decision. It's called a Peace Officer Standards and Training Board, or POST Board. 
we wanted to find out why they don't require police departments to train officers in de-escalation. Reporters from Reveal and American Public Media contacted all of the post boards. Here's Curtis Gilbert again of APM Reports to tell us what they found. De-escalation is a controversial subject in the law enforcement world. Mike Sherlock spent 30 years as a cop. He held just about every job on the force. I actually worked robbery homicide for a while. When you call a witness or something on the phone and go, hey, this is Detective Sherlock, they don't believe you very often. <laughs> Let me put it that way. You almost had to be a cop with the last name Sherlock. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was destiny, you know. Now Sherlock runs the Nevada Post Commission. It doesn't mandate de-escalation training. And Sherlock doesn't think it should. I think it's based on a false premise. And the false premise is that officers are prone to excessive force. Sherlock says Nevada police officers are already taught that communication skills are key and force is a last resort. But he says overemphasizing that could be dangerous. He worries it could lead officers to hesitate when they need to be decisive. I want officers in my neighborhood who make legal, moral, ethical decisions. And it may mean that they have to escalate what they're doing to save my daughter or save my son. And my, my point is, we have to be very careful how we couch this. If it's about using no force, um, we're going to have officers hurt and we're going to have citizens hurt. Do you think, though, that with better training, you could save a life or two, though? You know, every once in a while, there's an officer, and it's not that he did anything illegal or immoral, but just that he went in there charging in and got himself into a situation where there was only one option left, and that was to use his firearm, and that maybe with some better tactics, calling for backup, taking more time, that maybe he wouldn't have to have that be the only option. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. But, but again, I, I go back to it. We do do that. I mean, that is what we're teaching. Doing exactly what you're talking about, training exactly what you're talking about, is the reason that we have so few use of force incidents in this country. This is a pretty common attitude among law enforcement officials. We already know how to de-escalate. We do it every day. But doing it too much could get us hurt or killed. When APM reports reviewed training records from police departments around the country, we found most of them had devoted hardly any time to de-escalation training, and most post boards don't make them. Many post board leaders said they have no problem with de-escalation training, but they do have a problem with mandating it. They want to let local police departments decide how their officers spend their time. And then there's the cost. A 40-hour de-escalation training can easily run more than $500 per officer. But money and time aren't the only barriers. Frank Zimmering is a law professor at UC Berkeley. He studies police shootings. Zimmering points out that most of the seats on state post boards are held by current or former law enforcement officials. One of the reasons why these fancy-looking boards are not aggressive is because they are essentially representatives of local governments. So you're saying because they're local police chiefs, they don't want to pass mandates on themselves or their peers? You bet. That isn't rocket science. That's basic political science. 
So that leaves it up to local police chiefs to decide what training their officers need. And Zimmering says reducing the use of force doesn't seem to be a priority for most of them. De-escalation is going to work only when saving civilian lives becomes an important objective of police administration and training. And you think that basically they have not shown that they care about this issue? Not to date. We found that police departments often don't change until they have a high-profile shooting. John Ohl led the police department in the Minneapolis suburb of St. Anthony for more than a decade. When he retired last year, he gave an interview to a reporter at a community newspaper. How's your day going? Good. In the interview, Ohl was dismissive of the Obama administration's push for police reform. Nothing's significantly broken in law enforcement right now. We are better trained, better selected, better educated, held to more standards, higher accountable, with better policies than ever before in the United States of America's history. Yet we're in the toilet right now. Why? Ohl told the reporter his department was already doing 90% of what the panel recommended. And I I just read and I go, yeah, doing, doing. I mean, some people don't do that. Doing, doing, doing. But when it comes to de-escalation training, the St. Anthony Police Department did significantly less than many other Twin Cities suburbs. St. Anthony officers did plenty of other training, though. In 2014, two St. Anthony officers went through a course called the Bulletproof Mind. It was designed by former Army Ranger and West Point psychology professor Dave Grossman. Dave Grossman begins the sharpening of your bulletproof mind with a glimpse into the world you enter every time you put on your uniform and gun belt. It's a world you need to better understand to go home safely at the end of every shift. This version of the training was posted to YouTube back in 2008. We're living in the most violent times in peacetime human history. In it, Grossman paints a frightening picture of police life. You're not dealing with ragtag, odds and ends criminals out there. You're dealing with individuals who are motivated to kill in a way that we have never seen before. The training is supposed to prepare officers mentally so they won't flinch if they need to shoot. We're going to explore the dynamics of another human being looking at you across the sights and you pulling the trigger and snuffing their life out. Grossman says police need to think like warriors and prepare themselves for combat. That's pretty much the opposite of the kind of de-escalation training Obama's task force recommended. Last summer, one of the St. Anthony police officers who took the bulletproof mine training shot and killed a black man named Philando Castile during a traffic stop. We got pulled over for a busted tail light in the back. You might remember what happened. Castile told the officer he was legally carrying a gun. He was reaching for his wallet. He was in the driver's seat. His girlfriend's four-year-old daughter was in the back seat. And his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, was in the passenger seat. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Moments after the shooting, she took out her phone and broadcast her boyfriend's last breaths live on Facebook. The officer who shot Philando Castile is now facing manslaughter charges. 
The St. Anthony Police Department is working with the Justice Department to review its training protocols. The Minnesota legislature is considering a bill that would require every officer in the state to take 16 hours of de-escalation training. It has bipartisan support. Curtis Gilbert is with me now. And Curtis, first off, how unusual is it for a state legislature to step in and mandate training for all police departments? Well, if you look nationwide, it is pretty unusual because most states do not require police departments to train their officers in de-escalation. But for those states that have made that decision, and there are 16 of those, it usually is the legislature that steps up and says, this is something that all of our officers need to do. So in other words, even though just about every state has a board that could administratively sort of with a wave of a magic wand uh, require all police departments to do this training, Those boards usually don't do it. It's usually the legislature essentially steps in, usurps the post board, and uh, requires every police department to train its officers in de-escalation. So you guys have been working on this story for several months. What's the big takeaway on de-escalation training? Well, the thing that really jumped out at me when I looked at the training records from uh, hundreds of police departments around the country is police do a ton of training, and they don't do much of it in de-escalation. And the conclusion we draw from that is that if the state isn't going to require police departments to do this, then they're probably not going to do it. We heard in your stories that some cities are changing their training policies. Uh, In San Francisco and Minneapolis, police chiefs are trying to get their officers to slow down. Can you talk about some of the others? Uh, Sure, yeah. New York, Chicago, Dallas, Las Vegas. So what you can hear there is these are some big cities. There are some big cities that are taking the lead, even as most police departments aren't doing this. And there are also some cities uh, that are trying some creative stuff, including Philadelphia. I had this interesting phone call with Charles Ramsey. Uh, He used to be the Philadelphia police commissioner. And a couple years ago, uh, Charles Ramsey was looking over the list of awards that his police department gave out. And he had this thought, which was that most of those awards were for essentially officers who'd been involved in dramatic firefights. We thought about it and we said, well, what about those incidents when an officer was confronted with a very dangerous situation? And they didn't resort to using their firearm, for an example. We need to recognize that as well. So now in addition to medals for valor, heroism, bravery, and honor, Philadelphia gives out an official commendation for tactical de-escalation. Ramsey says the decision was controversial at first, and he was worried officers wouldn't even show up to the ceremony to accept their certificates. Every single person showed up to receive the award. And I haven't heard anything negative about it since. Ramsey co-chaired Obama's task force on 21st century policing. Last year, he retired from the Philadelphia Police Department, but the award lives on. I wanted to meet some of the winners. Do you guys mind if we just pull the door closed just in case there's phones ringing and stuff out there? And the department connected me with officers William Murphy and Ryan McAdams. They were recently honored for the way they handled a 911 call last year. I asked them to tell me about it. Officer McAdams speaks first. It's around 10.30. We got received a call for a person with a gun. He was up from Cape May, New Jersey. He was intoxicated. It was his birthday. We get to the house, and a lady comes out, approaches us, and tells us what happened. She stated that a male was cursing her out over a parking spot. It's something as simple as that, where there was multiple other parking spots. She felt scared, said, I'm going to call 911. And then he proceeds to tell her 
fine, go ahead, I'm gonna go get a gun. So we go around in the back alleyway. He's walking to the rear of her house. At that point, we ask him to show us your hands. Both draw weapons, because we've seen him with his right hand behind his back. Now we're assuming, based on the call, that he had a gun. And again, your training kicks in, his hand's behind his back, you get a call for someone with a gun, so at that point, our guns are drawn, telling him, yelling at him to show us his hand. Kept saying it over and over and over again. What, four or five times, screaming. After what seemed like a half hour, but it was probably five minutes, he finally raised up his right arm in a 90 degree manner. And when he pulled his hand out, he had a 357 revolver in his hand. Hands on the handle. He didn't raise it towards us, he raised it to the side. Would you have been justified in shooting him? Yes, we would have been justified to shoot him. With a flick of a wrist, and you could do your history and see officers have been killed just as easy, threat's not over, even though he's not pointing it. But again, it, we don't want to shoot anybody. Though that person loses their life, we still have to live with that. It's not something any cop wants to do. Neither one of us felt that our lives were at significant threat at that point because, like my partner said, it wasn't pointed at us, the weapon. His demeanor wasn't one of violence. You could see he was either drunk or confused. We began to tell him to drop the weapon. Drop the gun. We continued to say the same thing to him. You could almost see the wheels turning in his head. I think he was just caught in that paralysis. And the light bulb went off realizing this is a bad situation. So he dropped it. Finally drops the gun. That didn't happen. Who knows where we would be in this situation now. And he actually was thanking us for not shooting him. Once we um, put cuffs on him and locked him up, he was starting to come to and like realize, like, wow, I really messed up. And that's what he kept telling us the whole time. And he kept apologizing to us. And as Ryan explained to him, well, thank you for not making us shoot you. It did make us feel a lot better that we didn't have to go through that situation and um, possibly take someone's life and then have to live with that afterwards. I guess a few months later, we seen him in court. He told us he went into AA classes because he was having a problem with drinking. So um, he's able to say that to us now. And we're able to see him, and hopefully he gets better from whatever he was suffering from and um, live his life, and hopefully nothing runs him with the police again. Philadelphia Police Officer Ryan McAdams. He and Officer William Murphy are two of the 57 Philadelphia cops who've been honored with the department's official commendation for tactical de-escalation. A couple other police departments give out similar awards. In Los Angeles, the union representing police officers opposes the honor. It argues the Preservation of Life Award puts officers' lives at risk. Curtis Gilbert is a correspondent with APM Reports. They're an investigative journalism group based at American Public Media. Journalists from APM Reports spent months analyzing training records from law enforcement agencies around the country and looking at state requirements. Since they began work on this project, two additional states implemented new de-escalation training requirements for police officers, and some other proposals are moving through state legislatures as well. But looking down the list of states that have passed de-escalation requirements in the past few years, there's a common thread. Missouri, Maryland, Ohio, Illinois. Many were places where police shootings became national news. The states only changed police training after somebody died. Today's show was reported and produced by Curtis Gilbert. 
and edited by Catherine Winter. They had help from their colleagues at APM Reports, Jennifer Vogel, Emily Havoc, and Ethan Nelson, along with data reporter Will Kraft and APM Reports editor-in-chief Chris Worthington. Reveal's Michael Montgomery produced our San Francisco story. Additional reporting from Shoshana Walter. To see dashcam footage of the Georgia shooting and to see what police training your state requires, visit apmreports.org. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. No Mullen. They had help this week from Catherine Raimondo and Mary Lee Williams. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor. And our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the High Singh Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. By the express text of the statute, it says, quote, whenever the president finds that the entry of any alien or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants or impose on the entry of